Welcome to the White Sunglasses. I'm Jindai. My pronouns are she, her, they, them, and I'm a gender-fluid, queer Black woman who is honestly tired, exhausted. It comes from within, sometimes so deep inside of me that I can't place why I'm tired. I just know that I am. When you hear that I'm exhausted, or when you've experienced similar feelings of exhaustion, we tend to think of it as a current feeling, as an in the now. But exhaustion is wholly related to our identities. For me, as a gender-fluid Black queer woman, my exhaustion is because of the strain on my identities, for sure. But it's also because of the strain on my ancestors, of the institution that has shackled us into exhaustion. So, if you're feeling exhausted too, hey, I'm right here with you. Let's take a deep breath and dive into episode three, Identity Soup. To explain my exhaustion, I want to paint a picture for you of what I deal with as a black queer person. Regular racial injustice on top of a global pandemic, on top of high living costs, on top of all the racism and phobias and prejudices, on top of people trying to block reproductive rights and critical race theory education. That's a lot of shit to deal with on a day-to-day basis for black and brown folks. Now, on top of all of that, try to play it cool each day. Try to show up as your best self each day. Can you do it? I know I can't. It's hard living in this complex identity soup and I'm tired of punishing myself for not being able to show up each day. I want to share a sad epiphany I had during an event I attended the other day. The speaker, a black woman named Deborah Jenkins, spoke about how history is not behind us, but integrated in us. That really stuck with me. History is not behind us, but integrated in us, within us. Think about that. Think about your family history, about the steps your ancestors took to get to where you are now. That's deep shit. Jenkins linked this with how we're shaped by epigenetics. It's a big word, but In short, it means that traumatic events can cause changes, not just in your brain function, but in your very genes. Now, they don't change your DNA. Rather, they change how your body reads a DNA sequence. Basically, the trauma that has happened to those in your gene pool can affect how you respond to similar experiences of trauma because you're reading it as a similar painful experience. 
that's a bit complex, so I'll use Jenkins' example to help explain what I mean. Jenkins was adopted as a baby, so she didn't grow up knowing her biological family. However, one day she saw a lynching of a black man in a picture and felt this insufferable pain towards it. It wasn't her first time seeing photos of black men being hanged, but this one caused such an uncomfortable, visceral reaction in her that she needed to look up who he was. After some digging, Jenkins learned that he was her cousin, that they were biologically related. And though she hadn't known him at all before, that pain she felt when she saw his picture was real. That was epigenetics at work. Jenkins had never been threatened with lynching before and had seen plenty of photos in the past. But seeing her literal cousin from the past created a new reaction because of the trauma she shared with him in their shared DNA. The concept of epigenetics as a whole is wild to me. And when I heard it and reflected on it during the talk, it made me think about my identities. If calling it an identity soup feels weird, then I'm sorry y'all, but it's really accurate. Think of it as a soup that's been brewing and changing for generations. And with each addition into your bloodline, the soup gets a different seasoning, a, a different ingredient, a change in temperature. The things you add in the beginning can absolutely change the flavor throughout. And the same goes with our ancestors and who we are today. We are a combination of traumas and successes and failures from our ancestors. And because of that, we can't just pretend we're always living in the now bubble. Aside from our ancestors, we also can't ignore our own personal journeys that we take. Each of us, regardless of race, ethnicity, or gender, has to go through a process of coming into ourselves. For Black and white Americans specifically, the growth we go through can be tracked within identity development models. Janet Helms coined the white racial identity model back in the early 90s, and I'd like to dive into it for the non-Black, Indigenous, people of color listening right now because this isn't something that's readily taught, and I do think it's something you can connect to and understand in your relationships with people of color. So, what is white identity theory? Well, in short, it's the way white people gain awareness of and act on their place 
in systems of oppression, power, and privilege. Does that make sense? Helm says there are two phases with three different notable points within them. Getting through each stage of each phase depends largely on interactions with people of different identities and self-education. I'll try to make this easy to digest, so don't worry. I got you. Two phases, three notable stages. Let's start with the first phase and work our way down from there. The first phase is the abandonment of racism stage. Now this phase comes in three separate stages, but they're not necessarily linear. White folks can go between them and backwards a bunch in their own racial awareness journey. Within the abandonment of racism phase, the three stages are contact, disintegration, and reintegration. I'll go through each one, so feel free to take notes. I encourage you to reflect on your own life as you hear the different stages. First is contact. This is like the baby stage, where a white person is totally unaware of their own racial identity. In fact, whiteness as a concept isn't a race, but like the default. Acts of prejudice feel like isolated acts of meanness, like they can be waved off as problems that aren't inherently institutional. People still in the contact stage also might not quote-unquote see race and have internalized superiority based on the institution that benefits them. Next is disintegration. This is a big step up though there may not be much change in personal actions. In this stage, a white person becomes aware of racism and their own privilege, which is great. But a lot of their energy is devoted to shame and guilt and anger. They're conflicted with their whiteness and where they stand in relation to their identity. This is the point that I like to call taking off the white sunglasses. The world is no longer a white paradise, but a people of color place of suffering. And a white person in this stage is grappling with their own participation in the system that oppresses. Because of all that guilt and anger, a white person may then slip into reintegration. This is a conflicted stage in which the guilt becomes fear and anger towards people of color. It's a blame the victim response because of pressures by other white people to ignore racism's existence. The guilt can be overbearing. Existing as a white person feels wrong and pretending like racism isn't real also feels wrong. But trying to confront the system that benefits you also feels very wrong. Generally speaking, there are a lot of white people sitting in the reintegration phase, unable to push into the next phase of white identity theory 
that's because of how difficult and eye-opening this stage really is. Let's take a deep breath. And out. All right. The second phase is the evolution of a non-racist white identity. It's kind of a clunky name. But this is what I like to think of as the awakening phase, the, the phase where white people start unpacking their learned privileges and do something about it. The starting place in this phase is pseudo-independence. This is where a white person starts abandoning their beliefs in white superiority for the sake of the greater good. However, it's not perfect. It's more of an understanding of what's going on and thinking about ways that institutionalized racism affects others, but there's still internalized superiority. It's like understanding that people of color are being harmed, but like also noting that people in other countries have it hard too. Or the classic, my people were oppressed as well. Like, yes, that may be true to an extent, but something still needs to be done here and now. That's where the next stage comes in. Immersion and immersion is the stage of trying to redefine whiteness with anti-racism at the forefront of identity. A white person in this stage is always seeking out other anti-racist white people to have conversations with. This stage is also about being really self-critical and teaching others, which, though exhausting, is the best way to gain a better understanding of how to actively be anti-racist. Finally, there's autonomy. This stage is the hardest to achieve, but the most gratifying for sure. It comes with an internalized, positive white identity and pride in being an active anti-racist in action and not just in belief. This stage is always about putting people of color's voices first, always seeking feedback, and always trying to understand and work to dismantle systemic racism. How you doing after all that? I know it's a lot to digest, so just sit in it for a moment. If you're white, how have you seen yourself go through these stages, if at all? How have you seen it in others? Although I'm not white, I definitely have people in my life in all stages of both phases of the white identity theory. Although I definitely try to keep the first phase people at a distance. Now, you may be wondering if white people are the only ones with an identity theory, and the answer would be no. There's one for people of color in America as well. It's much more and much less complex than white identity theory 
Because white identity theory is about the oppressor learning about the oppressed and how they relate to the system. Black or people of color identity theory is much more about finding security in your ethnic background and feeling bonds with others of marginalized groups. There are four stages, pre-encounter, encounter, immersion and immersion, and internalization. I'll go through them and provide some examples from my own lived experiences, since that's what I know and can visualize best. Ready? Pre-encounter is the belief that it's better to be white than a person of color. It's about the desperate need to be absorbed into the dominant white culture, to be accepted by white people in whatever way possible. As an example, when I was younger, I didn't understand why I wasn't white. I did everything I could to fit in with them. All of my friends were white, and when people asked if I was black, I lied and said I was mixed with white and black to try and be closer to them. I wish I could go back and hug little me. Encounter is the literal encounter with racism and othering. When a person of color is impacted by racism, they become angry, confused, and unsure of who they are in relation to whiteness. There's a rejection of self as well. When I was in middle school, I was made fun of for the days when my natural roots were showing through my permed hair. Those moments made me hate my blackness. But I also couldn't understand what I could do to be better or to be accepted. Immersion and immersion is completely surrounding yourself with symbols of your ethnic identity and rejecting all forms of whiteness. This leads to seeking out opportunities to learn more about your history, your genetics, your background, and your relation to your oppressors. For me, this happened in my freshman year of college when I was placed in the residence hall that celebrated black and African descendant peoples. It was random, I didn't choose it. So at first I was ashamed of being in that residence hall. But with each encounter I had with fellow black and African descendant people, the more immersive my experiences became and I grew to finally accept and eventually love my blackness and project that self-love outward as well. Lastly, internalization comes with security in your identity. It comes with not just loving your identity, but being able to objectively critique it and other ethnic identities as a form of betterment.
In this stage, people of color find themselves more able to form connections with anti-racist white people and empathize and organize with other marginalized folks. This is an ongoing process for me, for sure. I consider myself an activist and I fight for what I believe in, and I fight for marginalized groups to be heard. While I'm not always perfect at it, and honestly, I don't think I ever will be, I do know that I'm doing my best within the system. If you're a person of color listening, where do you see yourself in this? Where do you see your family, your friends? Of course, it's not a totally explanatory list of all the ways that different ethnicities of people develop. But isn't it fascinating to see it all come together? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Okay, Jindai, I didn't sign up for school today. Why am I learning about all of this? Well, for starters, it's interesting. But also, remember how I talked about our identities and experiences being soup? All of this is part of the soup. It's not as simple as a little salt here, a little protesting racial injustice there. It's complex and rich, and each of us is our own different flavor of soup because of all the different ingredients and identities that we're made of. The next time you show up for work and interact with coworkers or talk with friends, think about how your soup and their soup are totally different flavors of soup. We all come from different walks of life with totally different identities and backgrounds. So why would you ever expect your friend or your coworker's soup to taste like yours? Why would you ever expect your friend or your coworker to know exactly what you need and how you need it? Or why this one thing gives you anxiety? Or why you really don't want to talk about that? Or why you really get excited about something? The reality is, you can't expect that. We all respond, think, and act based on all the different ingredients in our identity soups. I say all of this to say, the next time you engage with someone, think about how you can show up for them, too. Think about how you can relate to their identity soup, how you can better understand them to better yourself, too. Because sometimes the best way to think about your own growth is to consider what might be affecting others. And who knows, maybe that will give you the ultimate good soup. How are you feeling right now? What are you reflecting on right now? 
take some time to breathe, to focus on your biceps. And we'll chat again next time, my soupy listener. <laughs>